Hi, everyone. I'm Mark Legere. Welcome to a special edition of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network. At the end of April, the town of Riverview hosted its annual conference called Sustaina Palooza. The three-day virtual event featured 40 guest speakers from 14 countries leading a conversation about innovative leadership within the sustainability sector. It was a great roster of guests, but Bernadette Fernandez of the Veranda Network booked a very special keynote speaker, Malcolm Bricklin, the innovator and entrepreneur behind the Bricklin sports car manufactured in New Brunswick in the 1970s. Bricklin is now the CEO of Visionary Vehicles, which is designing and manufacturing a new EV. The keynote event featured a conversation between Malcolm and Insights co-host David Campbell. Huddle was a media sponsor of the event, and we're excited to rebroadcast that conversation as a podcast. Here's David with a primer on Bricklin and his venture in New Brunswick before he begins their chat. When Bernadette Fernandez contacted me to see if I would be interested in interviewing Malcolm Bricklin for the town of Riverview's Sustainapalooza conference, I was surprised. Any adult living in New Brunswick 45 years ago will remember the name Malcolm Bricklin. He came to New Brunswick in the early 1970s with financial support from Richard Hatfield's provincial government and set up a highly touted sports car manufacturing facility. And within a few short years, he had gone bankrupt. It felt like the opportunity to interview a ghost. When I started working for the New Brunswick Department of Economic Development in the early 1990s, the bureaucrats were using the Brickland Project as a cautionary tale of what can go wrong when government tries to pick winners. Even today, 45 years later, in economic development circles, the old-timers will warn of the perils of Brickland or the ATCON Project in northern New Brunswick. I never felt that that story had been properly told. It lacked nuance. It was too easy to just hold it up as an example of government gone wildly wrong. So I agreed to talk with Bricklin as long as we could spend some time on his 1970s New Brunswick experience before moving into his current venture, an electric vehicle that he believes will sell like hotcakes when it comes out in a couple of years. For those of you looking for a hard-hitting interview, deeply critical of the project, you have the wrong guy. I did ask him what went wrong. We did talk about what he would have done differently then or even now. He was candid and open with his responses. But for me, he comes across as a sympathetic character, not the evil protagonist that milked the province for tens of millions and then rode off into the sunset never to return. He had a big dream. Premier Hatfield fell in love with that dream. It failed, and economic development ever since has lived at least somewhat in its shadow. There is a particularly interesting point in the interview where Bricklin says Hatfield told him he was tired of the relentless media assault every day they didn't want to talk about anything else other than the financial health of the, health of the car manufacturing operation. Part of the re reason for Hatfield pulling the plug when he did was to shift the conversation away from the Bricklin and its problems and to other uh, uh, policies and programs of government. Was Malcolm Bricklin Elon Musk before the advent of what we would today call venture capital? If he'd been able to secure a few million more in private capital, would things have been different? Would the project have advanced, eventually sold to one of the big auto manufacturers and still be producing automobiles in New Brunswick today? I think you will like this conversation. Bricklin weaves in his work with Henry Kissinger into the conversation. He talks about a preliminary conversation he had with Elon Musk before that entrepreneur became famous. He tells us about meeting Slobodan Milosevic and being so disturbed he divested from his Hugo car company. And then a few months later, the United Nations actually bombing the factory. You will even find his new venture compelling. 
a three-wheeled stylish electric vehicle with faint echoes of that original Brickland that he hopes will sell millions around the world. At 82, I ask him when he plans to retire. I think you know his answer. Here is my conversation with Malcolm. So we've got about an hour here, uh, Malcolm, to talk about what you're up to these days. But I thought we would start by going back into history and, and your, your experience in New Brunswick. There's a, a lot of uh, uh, older folks that remember that time. But, and there's a younger crowd that, that has heard about Bricklin and probably you know, would like to understand a little bit more about it. So if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about that before we move into uh, what you're doing these days. Please do. By the way, that was 48 years ago. 48 years ago. That's pretty amazing. It's, uh, it's still, if you were to ask a, a person, anybody of a certain age in New Brunswick uh, about Bricklin, they would have uh, memories uh, of the manufacturing plant and that time in New Brunswick. So I, I guess when I was thinking about what I was going to ask you, I, I, you know, that was an interesting time in New Brunswick. Sure. There was a lot of modernization going on. You know, we were the the premier at the time and the government at the time was trying to really modernize and bring New Brunswick into a a modern state. There was a lot of investment in social infrastructure and physical infrastructure and a lot of effort on economic development. We saw that Ontario and Quebec were building very large manufacturing sectors. And I think the premier at the time uh, wanted New Brunswick to get a piece of that action that wanted to get in on a high value manufacturing sector like auto. Uh, so I guess the first question for you would be, why did you choose New Brunswick for that project all those years ago? Well, first of all, we were looking all over the country, all over the world, actually, for somebody who would finance the manufacturing of the car. We were spending our money on engineering and development and setting up a dealer network and making sure we had the parts and the training and everything that people don't really realize goes into selling a car before you sell the first car. And somebody working for me said, um, you know, you might get a chance to have somebody finance a factory if you'd be willing to go to New Brunswick. Well, it turns out I was familiar with New Brunswick, Georgia, because a man that owned Dixie Paint and Varnish Company bought my first company, handing me, not my first, but a company from me before I was 21 from for a million dollars after taxes. And his factory was in New Brunswick, Georgia. So I knew that. And I certainly knew New Brunswick, New Jersey, but I had never heard of New Brunswick, Canada. So the first question was, where was it? And right above Maine, I said, well, let's go. First, before I said, let's go, we checked to see that they had a premier that was very, um, very today. He was out there. He was looking to do good things for the province. And he devoted himself to doing that. He didn't have a private life. So I went to meet Premier Hatfield. And I was taken with him immediately. And I told him, hey, I, I've been, I'm building a car. I brought cars in with Subaru of America, but I've never built a car before. And so far, it's costing me a lot more money just to develop it than I thought it would cost and longer. I said, but if you were willing to finance the factory, I'd be willing to come to, the, to your province. And we talked and we got to know each other. And he said, my goal is to get great publicity for New Brunswick to show that we are out there, we're advanced, and we have people who can do tomorrow kind of jobs. They can get well-paying jobs, and they can do that job. I said, well, the one thing I can guarantee you'll get is publicity. So we made a deal. 
And we started with, I don't remember whether it was $3 million or $5 million. They gave us a, an empty paint factory. Our job was to convert that paint factory into an assembly line to build this car. And they gave us a facility in Moncton that we were going to do our body. Now, the body, by the way, was a material that's never been used before or since in a car. And it was a solid sheet of acrylic, which meant it was solid paint reinforced with fiberglass. And although people don't make a big deal about it, we knew then, and I said then, that 40 years from today, that car will look exactly like it did when it came out of the factory. If you have a scratch, you'll buff it. If you can hit it hard enough to make a hole in it, you can't dent it. You could make a hole in it. You can pick back the hole and you can bond it and buff it and it will look like a brand new car. So I was in fact trying to develop a vehicle that one, didn't need a paint facility because the paint facility would cost three to $400 million to put in. And I was talking in 3 million, 10 million, 15 million, $20 million. By the way, another aside, John DeLorean, who maybe we'll get into some of the stories where he was going to go work for me and be my president. In turn, we didn't agree on certain things like who's going to put the name on the back of the car. But after I failed in New Brunswick, we had dinner and he asked her some advice. And I told him the place to go if you really want a lot of money is to go to Ireland because they had offered me anything I wanted in life, but I didn't want to go there because they were killing people there. He ended up going there. And the same thing that cost us $25 million plus my, my money, plus the, the province money that everybody was bitching about, John DeLorean spent $300 million to accomplish the same thing. Wow. Wow. So we, of course, there is a, there is a movie uh, about the DeLorean story. So Bernadette and I were talking about if we had the Brickland movie, who would play uh, whom in the roles? And we hadn't quite figured out who would be the uh, Hollywood star that's going to play the part of Malcolm Br Brickland. I don't know if you have any thoughts. Of course, I want Brad Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> good choice. Good choice. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I travel a lot in the, in the U.S. on I-95. Almost every summer I go down south for a, a visit and you invariably you will see one or more uh, Bricklands on the road even now. Do you have any idea how many uh, vintage Bricklands are still in operation? They, nobody really has the right number. We built a little shy of 3,000 cars. By the way, we had 46,000 back orders when we were put out of business. Everybody said, oh, we couldn't sell it. We couldn't sell it fast enough. I mean, we couldn't build them fast enough for the sales that we were coming in. We put a stop to it because the dealers were beating us up to get more cars and we just couldn't move fast enough. We were in a learning curve. Um, I would say based on information that uh, comes to me, somewhere around 1,500, uh, maybe 1,800 are still on the road. Wow. There's a couple hundred in the Brooklyn Club that take care of their car like it's their baby. Yeah. And when I see that car driving down the road, even though it's 48 years old, it still looks like a car that's going to come out tomorrow. Not from yesterday, but from tomorrow. Yeah, it looks really, really spiffy. But I wanted to ask you, what, what do you think went wrong? I mean, I'm sure you have uh, ideas for us on that. Was it a technology issue? Was it a design issue? Was it just a cash flow issue? It kind of seems maybe there's some cash flow issues there. I mean, it's been a long time, so but maybe you could weigh in on what you think went wrong and, and why the car never really uh, took off. Oh, that's not the case. The car took off. 
what happened was it was a combination of politics mixed with a really serious under under um, uh, projected need of cash. If I had come in there in the beginning, I would have said, if I knew what I knew today, it's going to cost $50 million. We're going to cost X amount of money and time to get a car. And then it's going to cost X amount of money and time to tweak the car to get rid of the problems that we're not going to know until we start building the car. But our problem was, I told the province in the light millions, three, four, 10 million, and I kept going back because I didn't know how much it was going to cost. And when there was problems, it wasn't like that was going to put us out of business. Everybody has problems. Look at Elon Musk. He is doing incredible. He hasn't made a serious pro profit in 14 years, spent over $20 million. Now, people might say, what's wrong? Couldn't you sell the car? He's selling the car fabulously. His problem was he had to keep tweaking it and tweaking it, and he needed more money to tweak it. The other thing is when you're in that kind of situation, doing business with a political entity is not smart because they are, they are um, obligated to the constituency to give them real information. And here it was me changing that information as I was learning it, and that's not good politics. And then on top of it, <laughs> the thing that I thought was be for sure make us really safe was the thing that put us at down. One day the premier came to see me. And by the way, I learned to respect that man. And even though he was the man that got us there and the man that put us out of business, I still had the greatest respect for him for as long as he was alive. I thought he really was a good politician and he always had New Brunswick at his heart. No, there was no question in my mind about that. Um, I remember one day he came to me, he said, uh, Malcolm, I need three Bricklands and here's the colors I want them in. And I said, sure, where do you want them? He said, well, deliver them to me. And he told me where. I said, what are you using them for? He said, I'm calling an election. And the first car is going to have, it's going to be driven up and it's going to be to bring people's attention. And then the next car is coming up with my mother in it. And then the third car is coming up with me. And that's what he used around the state to make his election campaign. Well, the next day he won the election I believe with the largest majority ever of anybody winning an election for premier. And in the newspapers, it said, as it showed him coming out of the top of the car with a Superman suit on it, saying the premier wins the Brooklyn election in a landslide. <laughs> and I said, wow, I got it made. Nothing could ever harm me here. Well, a couple months later, Again, with our problems, we needed more money to fix this or fix that or get the bodies right or find the bonding to make the fiberglass and the acrylic bond with each other. Uh, he came in. He said, uh, Malcolm, close the door. We have to have a little talk. Yeah. He said, I know you're not going to believe this, but I'm closing you down. <laughs> I chuckled and I said, Mr. Premier, you have 1,200 great paying employees. They're we're really finally getting around to building a decent car that's coming out. We have 46,000 back orders. Why in the world, unless it's a joke? He said, no, it's not a joke. He said, let me tell you about unintended consequences. He said, I used the car to win an election. After all, I did bring you here. After all, you did have great paying jobs and you did promise we'll get publicity and we've gotten a lot of publicity. The downside was every day when I go out to meet the press, 
there's two questions they want to ask me. How's Malcolm and what's happening with the car? And that's it. They are not interested in asking me anything else about politics. And I no longer have myself a voice. So here's what I'm going to do. Because I can't keep giving you money. And you're going to need money to go forward. So I'm going to put you in bankruptcy. I'm going to wait a while, maybe up to a year. I'm going to call another election. And this time I'm going to win without the car. And that's what he did, by the way. He called an election, I think, about a year later. And he won another election. So... I guess what you're saying, I, I think the, the comparison with Elon Musk is interesting. I, I guess the back then there wasn't that source of, of more risky private capital available that would, could come in private sector capital? No, not for a car. Well, John DeLorean had a great reputation. He certainly knew what to do about manufacturing. He didn't know what to do about sales, by the way, and that was his downfall. But he certainly knew manufacturing and he had a great reputation. And he went and got $300 million. But from where? A government that was willing to give out money for jobs because they were still killing people. So very few people were anxious to go there. So, but he could not raise any money privately. He had to go to the same source, except one that's more desperate. So just a couple more questions on that, because there has been some speculation that the problem was New Brunswick, that, that there was no supply chain for the auto sector here, that the workforce wasn't geared uh, for the sector. What, do you have any, it's, long, it's been a long time, but do you have any thoughts on that? Was there a problem in the actual manufacturing, the supply chain, the workforce, or was yes, it really, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 there was, but, but that was not the cause of its failure. Here's one of the problems in Canada or in New Brunswick, I'm not sure which, it was some kind of thing where you worked like 120 days and then you got unemployment for a year, some, I'm, I'm not getting the right numbers, but something in there. And every 80 or 120 days, I had 80% turnover because they could get unemployment for another year. That's a big problem when you're trying to build something like a car. That's number one. Um, and number two, in the politics in New Brunswick, I found that when the premier was for us, the opposition party was against us, not just against him, against the project. There were people who would not come to work for us because they were the opposition party to the, to the party that the premier was in. But that was not our downfall. We had good people. We had good training. They were getting the knack of everything we're doing. The downfall was simple. We were asking a political entity to keep on giving us more money without me being able to tell them that's the end of it, because I didn't know. So it was, and we were building, remember we took a paint factory, we turned it into a car factory. We went to Moncton and turned it into the place to build the most exotic panels ever built in the car business. So we did some incredible things with incredible people from New Brunswick. Yeah, it's, it sounds like you really had to bootstrap it, but um, it's, a, it's a very interesting story. I did uh, want to ask you one last question. Do you think that kind of high-end manufacturing is, is there any kind of potential for that in places like Atlantic Canada or New Brunswick or because of supply chain and other issues, it has to be, you know, Southern Ontario or, or wherever. No, I know. I think New Brunswick or any place else that wants it, but they have to do business with somebody or a company that's well-financed coming in there. So no matter what they get from the, the province, it's only additional to all the really base money that they really need in the factory. And they have to come, the factory has to come with people who know what they're doing in manufacturing. Not they're going to learn while they're doing it in that in any of those places. Yeah, I don't think there's a problem at all. This stuff with uh, 
not being able to get the supply chain. That, that's interesting, but that's not that serious a problem, not in today's world. So, Malcolm, I, I thought it was very interesting when I talked to Bernadette and heard what you were up to these days, building a new car and and uh, and all of that. And I want to talk to you about that in a minute. But then I heard a podcast from Henry Kissinger, and he's about to uh, hit his 98th birthday, and he's still going strong, writing books, doing podcasts. So hopefully you've got a good uh, 20 years left in your career here before there's less in the tank. Well, first of all, I'm going to 125. <laughs> That's number one. Number two, Henry worked for me when we were bringing the Yugos in from Yugoslavia. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> okay, so why don't, we, why don't we turn to what you're up to now? You're working on a new electric vehicle. Can you tell the audience a little bit about that project? Yeah. Well, first of all, there's a big difference between now and back then. 48 years ago, I didn't know a thing about manufacturing, and I did know something about distribution. Now I know everything I have to know. And I have people that are the very best in the universe who are my partners in doing that. And I have a, a board of directors that's the who's who of the world who knows exactly what to do at the very top level of manufacturing and distribution and you name it. So there's a different game that I'm going into now. But about um, in the 1990s, I was introduced to a man by the name of Malcolm Curry, Dr. Malcolm Curry. Dr. Curry had just retired as the chairman of the board of Fuse Aircraft. He had also been undersecretary of defense for technology. And he was chairman of, you name, all sorts of interesting car companies. And he was the one that put the team together for General Motors, because General Motors owned Hughes Aircraft at the time, to build the EV-1. That was the first electric mass-produced vehicle. And although the reception was terrific, General Motors really was not in the EV business. They did sort of did that for publicity, but they got more interest than they thought, and they realized they didn't, they just didn't know what they were doing. So they pulled all the cars back and crushed them. And that really pissed Dr. Curry off because he thought he built a really great car, and he really thought that could be the beginning of the EV, and instead it wasn't. So he said with, to me, look, Malcolm, why don't we try to figure out what we can do with the EV world? And we start playing with batteries from computers. But the truth of the matter is we were stuck with lead acid batteries. And with a lead acid battery, I can't tell you all the millions of downsides that does not really make it good enough for a real electric vehicle, unless you want to go 20, 30 miles a day maximum. And so we played and we played. And we finally came to the conclusion, we're too early. It's not going to happen. But we liked each other a lot. And we said, what is it we could do with what's existing? And we decided, why don't we start the electric bike industry in the United States? And if you go to Google and you pull up the EV Warrior from the 19, late 1990s, you'll see what we did with design work designing it. We put in every safety device known to man. It was the most adorable little thing you ever saw. It sold for $12.95. I sold it through dealer networks. And it really started taking off. And I realized I didn't want to be in the electric bike industry. And Dr. Curry realized he could use his engineering technology to redevelop electric bike with hub motors and make them cheaper. And he ended up selling those vehicles uh, down, uh, I wasn't going to say dressed down. So it didn't have all the fancy stuff that he could sell for five or $600 through places like um, Walmart 
which is what he did. And I went off to go play with fuel cells with Jet Propulsion Laboratory. That's fantastic. So tell us about the car. I, I've seen pictures. You can, uh, the audience oh, yeah. can, can find it at uh, uh, vvcars.com. That's the website, vvcars.com. Right. vvcars.com will show you everything. So that story. So that got me into electric vehicles, thinking about them. The electric bike showed me the limitation that it really was available with the batteries today. I started playing with fuel cells, and although they were absolutely fascinating, they are still too expensive. It has platinum membranes. It's not ready, as far as I'm concerned, for the kind of vehicles I want to build. It will be one day, and it's going to be very cool. But right now, big trucks and so forth will be using them. And they'll be in cars, but they're not going to be that practical, in my opinion. Anyhow, we start playing, and I got let it be. And I went off to do some other things in the car business. And then about 08 or 07, I got a call from a man by the name of Eberhardt and Musk. And they asked me to please, when I came back to California, where I have a, a number of my sons and their families, when I came back, would I sit down with them and talk about the car business? They had started Tesla. Eberhardt actually had, not Musk, brought Musk in. Now, I think by that time they had built the convertible, uh, bringing in the Lotus body in and taking it all apart and putting in their batteries from computers. And anyhow, I did. And we spent four hours. One of my sons filmed them. And we talked about a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, Musk, I found interesting and uh, bullheaded and was not interested in a lot of the advice I gave him, like setting up his dealer network and why, and why, you know, the laws in different states would keep him and how you're going to need service one of these days, no matter how many cars you sell over the internet, someday a windshield wiper breaks, you better have one ready for somebody or they're going to be annoyed. He's about to find how that's going to affect his business. But in 14 years, he did an incredible job without listening to me, better than any human being has ever done. He has a company worth six, seven, eight hundred billion dollars. And he's now the first or second richest man in the world. That got me thinking. As I started seeing that going on, I said, good idea. I wonder what I can do to be in the electric vehicle vehicle business that is not going to be done by everybody because I realized everybody was going to get in it, meaning every manufacturer, automobile manufacturer. And what was everybody going to do? They're going to build an SUV, a pickup truck, and a sedan. And, you know, convertible here and there and so forth. But that's it. Everybody's going to do the same thing. And they're going to be priced between $40,000 and $150,000. And they do not need me to build another SUV, sedan, or pickup truck. Because no matter how cool I think I can make it, nobody's going to need it. With all these people jumping into it, there's going to be enough choice. So what is it that I can contribute that makes any sense? While we were spending time looking at all the various ideas and putting things together and making drawings and trying to figure out what makes sense for us, you would hear the same mantra, reduce weight, lose weight, body, make it lighter, frame, make it lighter. Batteries make it lighter. Make it lighter, make it lighter so you use less batteries. Less kilowatts means less dollars. So I said, how much weight do I lose if I take off one wheel? Came back with 1,500 pounds, not just for the wheel, but everything that's around the wheel, the way it's manufactured, everything around that. And I said, okay, now, why do we want to build a three-wheel car? First, we save weight. That means we can bring the price down because we can put in half the kilowatts. 
Now, suppose we made it gorgeous because it doesn't cost you a penny more to have a gorgeous body. It's just not the way the car companies do it. Under $30,000, it's vanilla. And as the price goes up, they make it a better car. I said, why don't we make a fabulous car? It looks fabulous, drives fabulous, fabulous dealer network, fabulous uh, miles between charges, and charge a fabulous price. Wouldn't that be an easy sell? So we went out to design something really gorgeous. A car you would buy not because it's electric and not because it's three wheels, but because it's cool and you wanted it. And then we did focus groups. And then we found people were afraid of a three-wheel car for safety. <laughs> well, safety is my middle name. I am not doing safety because I'm trying to meet the rules and regulations or I'm a do-gooder. I'm doing it because I got six sons. I got nine grandkids. And this month I have a great granddaughter. They're all going to be driving that car. I cannot have them in the car and get hurt when I could have put something in the car that would have avoided that. That's out of the question. So I went from a vehicle three-wheeler that not a lot of laws apply to it when it comes to safety, which is a reason why some people will get into that business because it eliminates the cost of a lot of safety regulations. I'm doing it to build the safest car in the world. Again, well, what do I do and how do I do that? Well, I have a friend, his name is Dan Panos. Dan built his own car in the 90s called the Esperada. And Dan, whose father, by the way, developed the nicotine patch. So they had plenty of money to do anything they wanted to do. And they were big in designing, engineering, and building race teams to race cars. They love that. And they've won things from the Indy to Sebring and everything in between. So I and with those cars, they hit a ball at 200 miles an hour. The car is demolished, but the, the driver walks. So I went to Dan and I said, Dan, I want you to build my prototype, but do my engineering. And my mandate is 100 miles an hour. I want you to walk. If you have to put, uh, you know, harness belts in instead of seat belts and airbags in them and everything you can think of to make this a safer car in the frame, that's what I want. And he said, no problem. 100, 100 miles an hour is easy as can be. So he's the one building my, our prototypes and doing my engineering. Um, and all of a sudden I had this car that I've taken the one ingredient that scared people, which was safety and went overboard with that and then start showing people the pictures of the car, front view, side view, and tell them the same pitch. This is a three wheel, all electric vehicle that is designed by, uh, race car engineers for safety. Here's what it looks like. Here's what the interior looks like. Here's it goes zero to 60 in five and a half seconds. It gets 250 miles between charges. What do you think it should sell for? And showing it to a couple thousand people over a period of a year in various price ranges, income ranges, age ranges, 99% of the people, the average price was $115,000. And when I said, what would you think if I sold it for $25,980 and almost to a man or woman, they said, I want one now. And we realized we had hit upon a product category that was going to sell as many as we wanted to produce. That's fantastic. I have seen pictures of it. It looks really uh, impressive, uh, at least on, 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 uh, on the website that you have. But it's kind of interesting that you got your start with Hugo's and the original Subarus. And then you, in your later life, have had more of a fascination with the design and the beauty of the vehicles. Well, here's the difference. 
when the cars you just mentioned, they were already being built. I had no choice. That's either that's what I was going to import. I was an importer, not a designer, an engineer. Now I've turned into any vehicle I'm going to put my name on is going to be gorgeous. It's going to be safe and it's going to be fun. And now I know how to build them really good because I know how to get really good people in the beginning. And I know it costs a lot more money than $3 million to do. So what kind of volume do you need? I don't want you to get into the specifics of your business plan, but that does seem to be a very reasonable price. What kind of volume are you basing that on roughly? Well, we will make a profit at about 50,000 units. I mean, a nice profit at 50,000 units a year. I'm expecting to sell a million units a year. And I'm expecting every 50,000 units to change the exterior of the vehicle. The doors stay the same. The interior stays the same. But new panels will go on the same frame that will be really good looking, but it will not be the same so that the used car price will stay high. If you want that car, it's already sold out. You want it, you got to buy it from somebody who owns it who probably doesn't want to sell it. And that keeps used car prices high. So where, are, where is this manufacturing plant that you're working with? Where, where is the manufacturing? Is it California? No, I cannot tell you that. Okay. And I can't tell you exactly what's about to happen next because we have some signs from NDAs. But people are going to be amazed at the componentry and technology that's going into the vehicle, number one, and where it's going to be manufactured, number two, in the United States. So it is going to be in the United States? Okay. Yes, yes. Um, do you have, uh, uh, when, do you, when do you expect this to launch? When do you expect to actually have them on, on the road? Uh, we should be the end of 22. So Remember, we have to sign, set up a dealer network. We have to do training. We have to bring in, you know, make enough parts that have, so that they have them before we sell cars. So it's an electric vehicle, but one of the questions I had that somebody mentioned to me, what about the manufacturing process? Is it a net zero facility? Are you considering the greenliness of the manufacturing process? Solar panels and wind turbines to run the whole factory because you have a big, big, big space on the roof of that thing. And yeah, it's going to be, we're hiring veterans. Um, One of the people who is on our board is a guy by the name of Tom Ridge. He used to be uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, but he came on our board because he's also president of the Disabled Veterans of America. So we've gotten people. I mean, we I personally believe that a veteran who is willing to sign up to, to forfeit his life if necessary is the kind of person that will put love into the car if we pay him a lot of money. So if we treat him right, and we pay him a lot of money. We're going to have people. I think they're going to build a car. I don't want it just a good car. I want this one to be a, a masterpiece. Sounds fantastic. How about your capital situation? So uh, is is there a chance you might end up in a New Brunswick situation again, or do you have enough runway uh, to be able to get many of these manufactured? First of all, I'm never duplicating that mistake, number one. So I may, in fact, well, I won't go down there. No, we we have enough money to do what we're doing, and we will have enough money to do what we're doing. We will either be involved with a SPAC who have been talking to us. I don't know if you know what they are. And or we'll have an IPO, not until the dealer and the distributor network and the cars are running around prior to and coming off the line, we'll have an IPO. So we will have it's we're right now at a time reverse of the time back there where people are hot for startup electric vehicles. And the people we have and the experience we have with our people and the kind of board of directors we have and the kind of money we already have in it is the kind of money that makes it easier to raise money than ever, ever in my time. 
It's outstanding. So again, it's uh, the, the website is vvcars.com. And I encourage all of our viewers here today and listeners on the podcast. Of course, Malcolm, we're going to be rebroadcasting this in a podcast format and, and um, uh, a little later next week. So we'll have lots of uh, additional uh, listeners. I wanted to, if, if it's all right with you, in the, in the 20 minutes or so we have left, I wanted to talk to you more broadly about the adoption of electric vehicles and the tra- electrification of the transportation system. I'm uh, glad you said you were thinking big in terms of the manufacturing, because I don't see how the numbers work. You've got governments now saying they're going to have, by 2030 now, many state governments have said that they're not going to be selling internal combustion engine vehicles. They're not going to be allowing them to be sold in their state. You've got other jurisdictions making similar uh, comments, but yet I hear from people on a regular basis that there's not enough vehicles. So you can hardly sell the EVs that are being produced today. So how do we get to a point in 10 years where uh, almost every car being produced is an electric vehicle? Okay, well, first of all, there's going to be electric vehicles and electric autonomous vehicles, which is going to open up a whole new world out there for people who want to have a car but are not interested in driving or use one car from multifamilies. There's a whole new world about to happen, but there's a serious problem. You have to sell these cars. And these car manufacturers that are used to selling ICE internal combustion engines are now going to have to sell EVs and nobody knows what they're doing. All the factories have been ICE and all the uh, dealerships have been ICE. And now you're telling them, here's a whole new vehicle, a truly all new vehicle. And it takes less service and less parts. So therefore, you're going to make less money on the back end. And they're being forced to do it. And they have people who are afraid of, uh, I'll call it range anxiety. I am. If I get in the car and I see that thing is going down, oh, my God, it's unlike a normal car. I'll pull in when it gets close to empty sometimes. I'll never let an electric car go down empty. I'll be scared to death. What's going to happen if it goes out? I mean, nobody's going to go running around with an extra battery to give me a charge to go let me get someplace. So there's going to be all sorts of problems. Problem number one, we've got to have more charging places in everywhere. If you have a garage, you're, you're almost okay because you're going to charge overnight. But if you live in an apartment and you don't have a garage, you've got a problem. You're going to find a place that's convenient for you. And you don't want to, not just the line you have to wait in to charge your car, but suppose you're the fourth guy in line. It's an all-day event. That's not conducive to sell a car. On the plus side, driving an electric car is a dream. It rides smoothly. It rides with power. You really, I'm telling you, it's an incredible experience if you drive an electric car that's done halfway right. But there's a lot of work that has to be done. And charging stations, and lots of them, is number one. And that's going to be the biggest problem, the range anxiety. But the push is on. And there's going to be all sorts of wonderful rebates, which I'm sort of against, but God bless them. Now they're talking a $10,000 rebate that you get at the, not, not taxes, but you get at when you buy the car. <laughs> That'll make my car in the teens. I will never be able to build enough of them at that kind of price. But there's a whole learning curve that's going to be out there that people are underestimating and, or at the top of the companies, the General Motors, the Fords, the Chryslers, the Fiats, and the Toyotas, they're worried about because you don't just build them and it can't just be a great car. You have to have a great sales experience and it's got to be, you've got to entice a customer to buy it. It's going to be an interesting problem. I yes, don't think we're because have a originally Malcolm, I thought we were talking 2050, but then I started to hear these stories 2030. 
Uh, and 2030 is just around the corner. I mean, if you know, we're, we're in, the, in the life of an industry like this, nine or 10 years is a, is a very short time frame to retool not only the manufacturing and the production of the cars, but as you said, the whole downstream infrastructure that supports those cars. Oh, yeah. It's going to be interesting. And how many battery factories to build? You have to project how many battery factories you're going to build based on what the sales could be, which you don't have the slightest idea. So you have to project it. You have to invest here. But if you don't do that, then you're going to have the sales and you're not going to have the batteries. That's going to be fun. It's, it's a problem. It's a problem. And the industry is going to go through this tremendous um, uh, earthquake is what it's going to be because they're all doing it. They're all coming out with the same vehicles. And, oh my, and they're going to send them to their own dealers that are not used to selling them. <laughs> it's going to be fun. And they're building 25 models at this factory and 25, I mean, in this company and 25 models in this company. Fun. Yes. Yeah, complicated. I, I'm quite worried about places like New Brunswick that are very rural, drive a lot of trucks, drive a lot of SUVs, uh, you know, not a ton of disposable income compared to some places, you know, urban centers or, or places like California. Do you think the economics are going to justify themselves? In other words, is it going to be a lot more expensive uh, no. to total cost of ownership to own an EV versus a, an ICE engine based car? No, it's going to be reverse. It's going to be cheaper to own an uh, electric vehicle. It's going to be cheaper to run an electric vehicle on parts and service. It's going to be cheaper to run for fuel the amount of electricity you need compared to the gas that you're going to normally run, probably going to save a thousand, depending on the size of the car, a thousand a year on that. Now that that's the upside for the consumer, but it's the downside for the factories and the dealer, because what doesn't cost more for the consumer means that you're making less money over here. So it's an interesting little problem. And no, New Brunswick can benefit. They can build battery factories. They can build motor factories. They can do a whole bunch of stuff uh, out there. And by the way, there's cars being built in China owned by General Motors and a Chinese partner that are selling for four and $5,000 electric. Mm, fantastic. Um, are you, you spent quite a bit of time in New Brunswick in the old days. Are you yep. worried that the cold weather here is going to wreak havoc on the, the, the batteries in the winter? Uh, if, if you take what is existing today, and you put them into cold weather, it will reduce the range 20 or 30%, depending on how cold. Not cool. <laughs> Definitely not cool. Especially if you're outside, it gets to even worse not cool. The battery technology is rapidly changing. When you have this kind of amount of possible business, the technology that was slow to get here is fast moving. The solid state batteries and other battery technologies that will get rid of those kinds of problems. Not today, but shortly. So yeah, it's cold weather is a problem right now that is not to the advantage of an EV, but it will be okay with new battery technology that will come online in the next couple of years. So are you concerned at all about the grid? Uh, there's still a lot of coal-fired power around North America, although that is coming down. Do you think we'll have enough clean or even nuclear energy to to make sure that the power that's actually charging those batteries is green within a couple of decades? A couple of decades, absolutely. Less than a couple of decades, but not right now. Right now, if they sell the amount of vehicles they want, there's not elect enough electricity for them, and they're definitely not enough clean electricity. 
but people are going to learn to put fuel, um, solar cells and wind turbines on their home and their apartments and get the juice for the batteries 100% from not the grid. But they, they're not there yet. So and what do you think about what do you think about the this the carbon tax idea? So we've had a lot of discussion about that in Canada, of course, in the U.S. as well. We do have a carbon tax in Canada, and the idea is that the carbon tax will force a change of behavior. And the concern is, I'm I'm a fan of carbon taxes theoretically, but the concern is that you know it's just going to annoy the consumer by raising the price of their fuel, and maybe there's other ways to incentivize them to go from an ICE-based uh, vehicle to an EV without just sort of constantly raising the price of the fuel. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because again, I'm still thinking about the rural places and places that, where the owner of these vehicles doesn't have a lot of disposable income. Um, again, I'm telling you in the very near future, I'm talking about the next couple of years, it will not cost more to own, it will cost less to own an EV. I, that, that won't be the problem. Uh, it's a matter of clean right now all the all the people in the car business have already changed their their whole focus and they're now going to be electric vehicles they don't need any more incentive they they need incentive in they need more charging stations they need reduction in price they need those kind of incentives but not carbon because they're going to be building them the question is how fast can they replace the antiquated electric supply system that we have around the world right now. How do we get them away from coal? How do we get them away from all that? Because you have jobs involved. You have whole areas of the whole world that are depending on that for their livelihood. There's a big political problem that has to be with that. But between solar and turbines, I don't think we're, go I don't think we're going to have a problem in the long run. But in the short run, it's going to be some chaos. So what do you think the role of government should be? Do you think government should be doing more to encourage the supply chain or the, the implementation of uh, charging stations or support for homeowners around uh, the purchase of these vehicles? Like what, right now, what do you think the role should be for government? If it was me and I had a choice of how to spend money wisely, my role in government would be standardizing charging. So you don't have, I'm going to put in 15,000 charging stations and you can't use it because your nozzle doesn't fit my nozzle. That should be out. Just like if you went into a gas station, that gas station can pump into any car out there. It's not, you can only use that for my General Motors cars. So one, number one, government should make a, a regulation. All charging is going to be the following. Your nozzles are going to be this and your input is going to be that. And everybody has to do that. That's number one. Number two, uh, I think incentivizing uh, factories like bringing battery factories over here to start building them some kind of with with reputable people with proven technology. I think government investing in some of that to a degree is a really great idea to have some incentive in the next couple of years to people to, when they bought the car to have something off their taxes or something off the sales price is a good idea that has to stop after a certain period of time. But uh, I think the best thing, in my humble opinion, the more government stays out of giving out money to people is a bad idea, and, and including me, a bad idea. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, because I think that one of the things that concerns me, as I said earlier, I'm more worried about the manufacturing capability. I, I don't know how, how many million of cars around the world are produced every year, but we've got, a, we've got a, almost like a light switch, switch that About over. 100 million, close to 100 million. 
<laughs> I, I think it's going to be more on the on the supply side than than the demand side, but we'll have to wait and see, I guess. I think it's going to be on every side. I, look, we're going, we're being, we're pushing everybody to change uh, into something that's brand new. Well, listen, I, this has been really great. I've really enjoyed our, our conversation. It's really great to see that you're still out there and, and uh, taking your entrepreneurial skills and putting them to work. And I'm sure you'll be doing that for many years to come. Um, I guess one of the questions people had here just before we, we uh, end our conversation, they wanted you to uh, tell us who was harder to work with, Kissinger or Musk? <laughs> well, first of all, my, my hat is off to Elon Musk. What it was, was I was dealing with a guy who had a vision his own way and I didn't realize what a special human being he was. He did things that I did not think, I thought we're gonna end up trapping him and they didn't. And he's done an incredible, and my hat is off to him. He is in fact, one of my heroes now because besides building an electric cars and starting the industry and building the most valuable car company in the world, he's also shooting rockets up and they're coming back and he's catching them and he's sticking things in people's brains and he's boring holes all of which I am totally a fan of. So if you go to Henry Kissinger, on the other hand, if you got a minute, I'll tell you a very cute story. Please. All right. I am in the, I met him. I was in the process of signing contracts with Zastava and I was on the way to Belgrade to sign the contract. So I had done research, of course, on Yugoslavia. I'd been back and forth a number of times negotiating it, took this car, that was in a 50-year-old factory and a 30-year-old car and the worst situation you've ever seen in your life. But you know me, I thought, no problem, I'll get this thing done. By the way, we made 528 changes. We did it in 14 months. It's the only car that didn't have a recall for safety. Anyhow, I am now in the VIP room in the Zurich airport and I am peeing. And you know how they have a thing that divides one stall from another stall. And while I'm being, I look over and next to me is Henry Kissinger. And I said, well, we're both being Henry. I said, don't you have, oh, now I'm going to forget his name. Unbelievable. The guy who ended up becoming secretary of state right after that was his president. Oh, I can't think of his name. Anyhow, that man happened to have been the ambassador to Yugoslavia. And when I read about Yugoslavia, he was their most favorite son because under some horrible thing that happened there, he gave blood. And so they loved him. So I said to Henry, as we're there, isn't so-and-so uh, working for you? He said, yeah, he's my president. I said, well, I'm about to make a deal in Yugoslavia, a very big deal in Yugoslavia. And I think I'm going to need some advice. Are you interested? While we're peeing, he hands a card over the divider, all right? I get the card, I put it in my thing, I laugh about it, you know, and I'm telling stories and we go over there and I'm laughing about the story and in, in the taking a pee in the uh, VIP lounge. And I get back to the United States, I get a call from Henry's office. Would I please come by and see him? So I was at uh, Fifth Avenue and 51st, he was at 46 and Park. So I walk over and I go in to see him. He said, uh, Mr. Bricklin, yeah. He said, well, I've thought it over and I've talked to some people. He said, uh, we'd be very happy to be a consultant to you. Um, we had a quarter of a million dollars a year. And I'll be your consultant. 
and I can't think of the man's name. It's killing me. He said, and he'll go on your board of directors. I went, wow, couldn't be make me happier. It'll impress the hell out of Yugoslavians, that's for sure. Now, what I did not know and didn't find out until it was over, he had checked, of course, with his government, with our government, to find out what the story was. And they had told him that Yugoslavia is teetering and maybe this will hold them together. So he came aboard to see if there was any way he could help in the background of making sure their country didn't implode, which it did, by the way, after I sold out and after the United Nations made it illegal to sell or buy from Yugoslavia. And then NATO put five missiles into the car factory. They blew up the factory with missiles? They put missiles into, they called them, they called up the factory and told everybody to get out. They gave them five hours and then they put five missiles in to show them. After you had sold out. Oh, no, no. I had told out. <laughs> I met I met uh, Milosevic. Uh, Eagle, oh, Eagle, Larry Eagleberger, who's, who's I'm talking about, who was our on our board, who was president of uh, Kissinger and who became secretary of state after Hugo. He called me up one day and said, hey, we got to fly over and meet the new president. I said, OK, fine. So we're flying over to show you how th silly things that silly things that smart people do. Larry was overweight. Larry smoked cigarettes. Larry, after each puff, used one of those things you put in your mouth to, to breathe. Mm -hmm. So he'd puff a cigarette and then he'd get an inhaler on that. Now, he is a really smart man. And he was doing that on the airplane because then you could smoke in the airplane flying over. So we go in to meet Milosevic, who was having this big party to introduce himself to me because we were the biggest thing happening in Yugoslavia. So we're in there and everybody's kissing our ass and being really nice to us. And I, we, well, I meet his wife and we meet him and we have a nice talk. And I walk out of the meeting and we're going back to the airport. And I said to Larry, I'm selling you go. He said, what is your problem? I said, Larry, and I pulled out my hand. I said, in my life, I have never been around evil. My hair, right now, my hair is standing on end. I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm getting out of here. And a month later, I sold out for 20 million. Two years later is when it became against the law. Mr. Milosevic was killing everybody. So you knew he was a bad guy. I had, you no, had an instinct I, that he was a bad guy. Never in my life did I have that kind of instinct. All I know is I felt something not nice and I was getting out of there. I did not know what I was talking about. Even when I sold, I had no idea why I did. It wasn't until I started reading what they were doing that I realized something thank God, told me to get out. Well, it was a wise decision, although I, I do remember as a child, there was a Yugo dealer in Lincoln, just outside of Fredericton. So I do remember those cars, a little boxy kind of car. Uh, they were a Fiat, old Fiat. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, last question, when, when are you going to retire? Eventually you got to retire, don't you? What, are you crazy? <laughs> retire. That's, that's a, a real bug that I have about retiring. Why would anybody retire? You work all your life to get smart. And then when you are the smartest you've ever been from experience, you stop and throw it all away. Let me tell you, when I'm laying around doing nothing, I can feel life coming out of me. When I'm out talking to you, I'm full of life and I feel terrific. So I'm going to go for, I feel, I want to feel like terrific and keep doing everything until I die. 
Well, that's fantastic. And it's a good, it's a good lesson for the rest of us. I think this old notion of retiring at 55 or 65, I think that really doesn't apply in the modern world. I think we should, as you say, we're just getting going. Uh, yep. And it's great to see you uh, so uh, excited and passionate in, in, at, uh, at the ripe old age of uh, 71. 82. 82. 82. Try right. 82. Hey, it's a pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to a special edition of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network. Thanks, David and Malcolm, for a great chat. Mark Legere and Sharice Letson helped produce this episode. You can subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And we care about what you think, so please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back with another episode later this week.